I'm David Harris, and you're joining us once again for an edition of Enjoy Your Life. Uh, joining me again, our co-host, Holly Hazelwood. Hey there. And Eric Miller, who, you know, usually like one night of sleep usually puts you off for like a month, right? Like a lost night of sleep. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, as I get older, it all it all changes. Yeah, well, I mean... I getting through... Get, Getting three hours of sleep earlier this week messed me up. Like, I mean, my week was done. <laughs> what a drag. Rough. They don't call it March it's Madness. They don't call it March Madness for nothing. You know, I know you were up partying all day. <laughs> <laughs> basketball. March, March Naples is yeah. what it's turned, been so far. Well, you and I are in the uh, double vax club now. So, yeah, you're not, you're not there yet until you're two weeks out, buddy. I know. I know. It's don't don't get in. ahead of yourself. Yeah. It's still I a mean, couple days in. It's it's really beautiful here in the double vax. <laughs> well, <laughs> I can't apolog- wait to get there, my friends. Apologies <laughs> for any gaffes on my end. I'm still coming out of the uh, the side effects. Uh, you know, so we'll see how it goes. I was pretty much out yesterday, but coming back strong here. But um, good. Yeah, I'll be over to hang out at your house soon without good. masks. Yeah, I'll be there. Great. Yeah, Look forward to it. Um, we do have a guest in. <laughs> I'm sure you do. We have a Jesus. Have a, starting off rough, yeah. We have a guest tonight. Um, <laughs> I'm very proud to present um, editor for Rolling Stone magazine and um, uh, lecturer or professor visiting. I don't know what, what you told me it was again. Uh, something like high honored professor of creative writing. Uh, at, a distinguished lecturer will do. A distinguished lecturer of creative writing at University of Pennsylvania. Not the, you know, that's the Ivy League one. I went to the. I went to Penn State for undergrad, which is, uh, you know, people get it confused. And I usually, you know, sometimes they're like, oh, you went to Ivy League school. And let them deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. No. But Anthony the Curtis, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. How are you in New York? I am in New York. Well, we are uh, three hours in the past here in Portland, all three of us. And I'll let you know that uh, things are still, well, I guess you would have to let us know how the future is. Earlier for you. Yeah. You, you're, you are three hours in the past. That's true. That's Anything. Exactly. Anything exciting happen between now and then? <laughs> no. Uh, really. Well, thank you for, for joining us. Um, I guess, you know, we ask all the guests who come on, like, how has the past year been for you? I mean, in terms of like... Uh... Um, well, you know, I mean, it, I'm hesitant to complain about it. You know, I mean, I, you know, I have a job. Um, I have my health. I also uh, have been double vaccinated. I mean, I had my second... Uh, vaccination just a few days ago. So, um, you know, my daughter is fine. So, I mean, I, I, you know, but I've suffered all the inconveniences that everybody else has suffered. You know, uh, (laughs) teaching remotely has been a trick. Um, You know, it, it, in a certain way, you know, it involved a, a, a higher level of intimacy than I ever would have expected. Um, 
my course, the course I was teaching, as a matter of fact, was on the Rolling Stones, whom we'll, we'll be discussing in a little bit. But, um, you know, the whole sort of semester just got shot out of the water and right around this time last year. And uh, when we reunited on uh, Zoom, you know, everybody just uh, really felt it was like all for one, one for all. Everybody kind of pulled together and it was quite emotional, as a matter of fact. Um, and then, you know, we all felt we'd be back together in the fall and that did not happen. So we just felt, okay, you know, this is what this is and we'll deal with it. Um, by the spring, which is where we are now, uh, yeah, I think everybody's ready to be done with it. You know, it uh, it's... Um, you know, it's difficult. And yeah, but look, I, you know, I live in a city. Um, I live in Manhattan. You know, there was always uh, people to deliver food and deliver meals from restaurants, even when everything was closed, you know. So um, in a lot of ways, I was I was more fortunate than many people and uh, and try to always uh, remember that. Now, Anthony, um, the reason uh, Anthony and I even connected in the first place is because I teach a, a class about uh, 60s music, and Anthony wrote a book recently about Lou Reed. And yeah. um, I, I, we, we learned about v, uh, Velvet Underground and Nico's, and Anthony was kind enough to come and talk to my students about it. And um, I thought your students were very good, by the way. Yeah. Uh, that, was, that was a really good discussion. And, uh, um, you know, I was, I was struck by how kind of smart and alert they were. I mean, for high school students in particular, but you know, I, I much enjoyed it. It was, it was a, it was a good hour. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Eric, are you, you're a big Lou Reed fan. I can't remember a few. I, I, I mean, yeah, I am. I, I wouldn't say I'm like, I, you know, the, the, I, I lose the thread some somewhat in the solo career. Um, but, I mean, what's that? It went on for a while. It did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's, and he, it's, but I, like the Velvet Underground was a was a band that like I fig- like I f- when I discovered them it was I mean just like everybody I mean it's just like there's something about that band that just is sort of scratches an itch and opens a portal in your in your head and and, and like that just really I really connected with in in college especially yeah no I mean you know they're kind of essential uh, it was interesting when I wrote the book. Um, I essentially wrote the story of Lou's um, solo career first and then went back and wrote the beginning, you know, where he grew up and the whole section of the Velvet Underground came at the end. I wanted to, you know, since it wasn't a book about the Velvet Underground, I and many books have been written about the Velvet Underground, I didn't really want to. I wanted to tell that story in a way that made sense for the story of Lou's life. I felt like that was the way to be, you know, most credible doing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was fun to do, you know, to get, to get to have your say on, uh, on something that's as uh, central to the culture that we all care about. Well, it's so interesting because there, you know, so many, so many artists, they have these massive solo careers that oftentimes are just so much bigger than, than whatever band they started off or whatever, whatever thing that they initially became known for. And it, uh, you know, that, that thing, it just looms large in, in everybody's life. And I, I'm like, 
Frank Black and the Catholics like put out way more albums than the Pixies ever did. And like, but the Pixies always loomed like. Oh no. Yeah, a huge solo career. We lost you there for part of your question. We got to the Frank Black's thing and then we missed you. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, you were talking uh, about it. wasn't really a question. Of, of <laughs> the Pixies, I think you were about to say, you know, always remain the most important thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. <laughs> Not mm-hmm. just for you. Or the Beatles. Well, and just like, yeah. well, and just like that's why I imagine like re- attacking the, the Lou Reed discography from, you know, his solo work first was probably like, a, you know, probably a more honest way of looking at, at his life and career. Yeah, I wanted to keep a focus on the fact that I was writing about the, about Lou Reed. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's what was going to make the book uh, distinctive. Uh, so, you know, I, I felt like, well, once I found a way to tell that story, then I also had a way to frame the Velvet Underground story in a way that made sense for this particular book. So that it wasn't just you know, somebody else, um, you know, regurgitating the history of the Velvet Underground, which we um, all know and, uh, you know, probably encountered many times before. Have you seen um, Laurie Anderson's Heart of a Dog? I have. It's really great. Like, I've showed that to my students, like, in the past, yeah. without any, not like, without any read context. And yeah. on its own, it's great. But it's like, that's like one of those, like, ideas. It's like, the, there's a Japanese saying, called uh it's like stomach talk or belly talk which is like where you kind of talk about an issue but you don't actually address the issue head on like it's all about lose death but they don't ever yeah. really reference him until the very very end of the movie very true yeah no um i you know look uh laurie anderson is like really really smart and uh and you know to say that she's accomplished is a vast understatement I, you know i thought that movie was a little sentimental uh, and kind of, you know, I don't want to say corny, but, you know, the, you know, the, I mean, I love dogs, you know, but, uh, I, I had a little bit of a difficult time with it, but I know, I know everybody else seemed to really love it. So, yeah, I thought it was great. I mean, on your parade. No, no, that's fine. You know, you, you wrote the book, you know, and, but I thought it was, <laughs> I just thought it was really touching in a lot of spots. I mean, yeah, yeah I can see that the, the death of a dog kind of being somewhat corny, but uh, something about it. Um, I mean, the, the, I think it was in that movie. The one part I really loved was um, when Laurie was talking about her mother, who was kind of like distant, and how seeing her sister would come home from school and um, they would go into like the dining room and like put out milk and cookies, and then they'd go outside again and then re enter the house and say, Oh my God, look! Mom put out milk and cookies. Nice. That was just genius. Um, That's what what Eric's kids do for him, right? (laughs) (laughs) Probably what my daughter does. You have a, your daughter's a preteen, like 12 or, you you told me. She's 15. She's 15, okay. Yeah. Okay. And Eric, you have a 11 year old, is she now? She's going to be 11 this year, yeah. And your son just turned eight. Yep, and my son's seven. So you know, we're all. I mean, being in a pandemic with small children is a blessing and a curse. I can tell you that. Like it's yeah. like, like it's, yeah. it's bonus. It's like bonus round time that I wouldn't normally get to spend with them at this yeah. age. But it's also there's no 
time to just let my brain kind of fade away. Yeah, Francesca and I are spending a shocking amount of time together. Um, and, <laughs> you know, but, you know, also, like, you know, she's a 15-year-old girl, and so, like, there's a certain amount of time that, um, you know, her privacy is very important to her, uh, which I'm happy to grant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to observe that boundary. So you selected the Rolling Stones as your topic tonight. Let's let's get into it. And uh, why do we? I mean, they loom large in the history of rock and roll. And uh, I guess yeah. Um, you know, I'd have to say if I had to choose, you know, they're my favorite band. Uh, have always been. You know, I saw them for the first time in 1965, twice. And um, so you know, uh, I. I always just enjoy talking about them. And when you invited me on, you know, without a specific subject that you wanted to discuss, you asked me what I would like to talk about. It just occurred to me like, well, you know, why not talk about something that's fun and, and, uh, and easy for you. <laughs> so that's why I chose the Rolling Stones. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, also everybody knows about the Rolling Stones. So it, you know, it, uh, uh, whether they like them or not, um, you know, it's, you know, it, at least uh, it's a recognizable topic. Well, let's get the, let's like talk about, uh, let's level the playing field here for a minute. You obviously you're a huge fan. Uh, Holly, where are you with the Rolling Stones? <laughs> I'm not a Stones fan at all. Y'all. <laughs> I, I like, a, I like it. I get why people really like them, but they just don't click with me. And I've never quite understood why, because I've listened to plenty of their music, but it just kind of like bounces off of me like Teflon. I don't know what it is about it. It's just so hard for me to grab onto. I think it's because it, it's not weird enough. I think is what's right. What's missing. It's so straightforward and it sounds so classic, but there's just a little bit of weirdness missing sometimes. And Eric, how are you? Yeah, I I honestly like for a long time I I did not I, I was sort of in the same boat as Holly. I, I didn't I, I was not I couldn't I mean their discography is so vast and they're just sort of like this ubiquitous band and and like I, I just couldn't find a way in. And then at some point I it it kind of clicked with me. The first honestly the first time that uh, it really clicked with me was when my now wife like when we met in college she played the song 19th Nervous Breakdown for me and I had never heard it before. Uh, it was not a, it was it just wasn't a song that I'd heard by them and I thought that song was so cool. She was like this is an amazing song and it's totally and that was sort of a way in for me and cuz it it's it's so awesome. It's such a great song. Um and so from there, like it's just kind of seeped in through the years, and I would say over the last couple years, and then the next—I mean, then it was Exile uh, on Main Street was then like oh, the next oh, thing that like for me was just like, okay, I I get it, like this is this is incredible, and um, so so yeah, so I've gone I've come around to like really liking them. I don't I have not like deep dived as much as I I would like to, but because. I, I also struggle with the the UK US version of like albums and things sometimes. <laughs> it's, like frustrating. Hard to, it's, yeah. it's so frustrating, right? Yeah. You know, to like figure out like what yeah. what is what and what do you, where do you start? Both with versions it? of Aftermath are awesome though. Just you got to decide if you want Painted Black <laughs> or Mother's Little Helper. You know, I bought all the American versions when they came out. You know, and I still all of my associations 
uh, are to those albums. Um, and, you know, so I don't, um, you know, when people start, you know, talking about like the English releases, uh, you know, they don't fall in the right place for me. You know, I was, I was you know, very pleased, you know, I guess it was beggar's banquet when, uh, you know, the same album came out at pretty much at the same time, uh, with the same tracks. And, <laughs> Uh, you know that made uh, that made a certain amount of sense, but Nineteenth Nervous Breakdown is a very interesting song. I mean, it it um, was actually thinking about it just uh, this week um, because there was a, such a you know obviously coming out of England, the Stones were so conscious as everyone is there and certainly was back then, much more so of uh, the class issues and. Um, you know, the Stones, you know, because they were such bad boys, were kind of darlings of the sort of debutante class. And um, so they kind of were mixing in that this, you know, this kind of um, doing this kind of class miscegenation, you know, crossing crossing the class lines. And um, as kind of like class revenge, you know, they there were a number of songs uh you know, kind of talking about the frailty of these girls, you know, 19th nervous breakdown, you know, here comes your 19th nervous breakdown, you know, when you were a child, you were treated kind, but never brought up right. You're always spoiled with a thousand toys, but still you cried all night. You know, your mother who neglected you owes a million dollars tax and your father's still perfecting ways of making ceiling wax. Yeah. <laughs> but it stop, you know, here comes your 19th nervous breakdown and, you know, Lady Jane was a song that kind of came under this uh, heading, Play With Fire. It's another one. Um, have You Seen Your Mother Baby Standing in the Shadows? Um, yeah. Sounds like Rich Girl by Holland Oates. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, a kind of element of, uh, <laughs> you know... Uh, or under, under My Thumb, A Squirmy Dog That's Just Had Its Day or something like well, that. There you go. I mean, now we're getting to another, another area. That's, a, right. that's um, uh, Under My Thumb. Yeah, I think that wasn't really... That was... Yeah, I mean, that's just uh, about, like, kind of, you know, male-female power struggles is how I would put it. Although misogyny would probably do just as well <laughs> yeah they've got one of the, the most misogynistic lines that i've heard in a song i think it's like black girls just want to get fucked all night but i don't have that much jam or something yeah. like that uh, <laughs> well, yeah. I, mean, I, I would sort of view that more as a racial problem but yeah. uh, that too yeah. <laughs> it's both really yeah. did i quote that correctly or was i, I mean was yeah. It, was, yeah yeah that's in some girls yeah, yeah. uh and um you know, I tend to view, I mean, Jagger um, obviously has a, um, you know, he's always kind of personally gotten along well with women and, you know, has had, you know, a million lovers and stuff whom he never discusses. You know, I mean, he's always very English, actually, in that regard. Um, and, but he's, you know, like, I think his character is, you know, kind of sufficiently pragmatic and... Um, I think tends to view relationships in power terms. And so, uh, you know, if it's like either you win or I win, you know, there, there isn't, it's not cozy. And, 
you know, I think, you know, it's, it's gotten more so as he's gotten older and it's now approaching 80, but, um, it there still is a kind of element of, um, you know, if you, if you kind of give too much, you're going to come out on the losing end. You know, I think, I think he, I think he views things that way. And I think that accounts for, you know, some of the taunting in these songs. For my, for my own part, I'm a, I'm pretty well versed in the stones up to a certain point, um, up to, up through tattoo you. I know most of it. Um, pretty big fan. I've seen them once in New York, uh, at the Roseland, I guess back in 2001. Does that sound about right? Somewhere in the neighborhood. That does sound about right. It was like the 40 Licks tour, but I saw them at the Roseland. And that's the only time I've ever seen them. And I'm kind of glad I saw them because it felt like they were an actual band and not just like this giant, like corporate thing at a with fireworks and a, a blow up banana, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. They still do play like a band. I mean, even in stadiums. I mean, it's one of the sort of remarkable things about them. But yeah, seeing them in a place like Roseland uh, is extraordinary. I mean, the last time I saw a show like that, I can't remember what year it was, but uh, was at the Tower Theater in um, in Philadelphia. They just burned the place down. It was incredible. The Stones? Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy because we got tickets, like on, it was back in the day where, I guess we got them online, but we got tickets and then we had gone to Europe or something after I bought the tickets. And when I got back, there was a letter that came in the mail that's like, you need to call this number by this date to confirm your tickets. And I like had pictures of the lips, you know, and the tongue yeah. all over it. And like we had missed the date because we had been in Europe, but I called and they're like, you're fine. And then oh, we had no. the, sh- we had the, sh- we had the show up like five hours early and get a wristband outside wow. the Roseland. And then it was so packed. Like I'd never been in a club like that packed and like especially bruce springsteen was there like on the other side of the room yeah i mean it's a small place it's it's like for you guys like it's probably the crystal ballroom size here maybe a little bit (laughs) bigger than crystal ballroom i just looked it's 3200 okay so and the and the crystal ballroom is 1600 okay so it's it's like double that it's still small for the rolling stones you know yeah no that's that is comparatively tiny that's about the same size as i think the the keller auditorium is about that yeah there's no seats it's it's just like a big open space yeah it's just or at least it was i mean it was i haven't been in for a long time it's fucking wild yeah it was cool but that's the only time i've ever seen it but i you know i maybe i'm missing out but i feel like that like uh, like after like tattoo is like pretty much downhill from there or is there things that you like or um let's see um it's like early 80s i think 81 maybe yeah uh you know there are you know that blues album that they put out you know whatever it was 2018 or something like that oh blue and lonesome yeah yeah um and you know there's like three or four good tracks on every album that they made after that (laughs) you know but um you know you know, I can't honestly say, I mean, I, you know, that I sit around and listen to uh, Bridges of Babylon or something like that. Although, as I say, you know, there's, <laughs> you know, three or four good songs on it. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, they're allegedly working on an album now, you know, it, I guess, given the, the, you know, restrictions on getting together. I don't know how well, but I mean, given what you could do technologically, 
Keith uh, Richards is fine. He's not catching coronavirus. He's un- <laughs> this is not going to be the thing that knocks the dude out. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the guy fell out of a tree and like had a hem- like a hemorrhage oh, in his brain God. and like was totally <laughs> fine. Right? He survived an aneurysm. <laughs> He's gonna be fine. But uh, I heard interestingly when Keith was writing liner notes for one of Keith's uh, last solo record and met him in uh, the studio down in um, NoHo. And uh, he said, well, you know, um, Don was is, you know, in the studio next door, you know, he's working on like some stone stuff, you know, would you like to hear it? And I said, well, yeah, sure. Of course. So I went back and like, we listened to like a bunch of like, you know, Jagger had evidently been in the day before, like trying to come up with like melody lines and listening to, you know, they were like, essentially like we were listening to a bunch of Keith song ideas, like, you know, riffs and, and it was like, just sort of amazing. Like, sort of sitting there was like me, Keith and Don was, and, uh, you know, everybody would go, you know, what'd you think of that one? It was like, Oh, that was pretty good. You know, like, it was, you know, it was like really, you know, like, I, I, you know, I went after I had to leave after about like 20 minutes or so, like, I just said, well, yeah, you guys are onto something. You know, you should keep working. You know, like it, uh, <laughs> it was like kind of funny to see how, you know, like it was just listening to a bunch of Keith Richards riffs, like, and you know, they all had like these kind of crazy names, like Hammer and Tongue or something, and you know, and and um, and Don was would like call it up on his laptop and like play it and just then just look, say like, what do you think? Um, yeah. What do I think? I think you're Keith Richards. I think you got it. <laughs> have you met have you met all of them before or interviewed them all or um I have yeah, certainly Nick and Keith. Uh I've never really I've interviewed Charlie and Ron Wood over the phone. Oh no, I've interviewed them in person. I have. Uh yeah, so I've met them all and, and talked to them in person, yeah. Because we're just going to be quiet, and you can just you can just do the rest of the show. We'll tell just stories. Back. You just tell stories. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And then what happened? <laughs> uh, well, my favorite story <clears throat> about all this was um, when I I worked at VH1 for a year. Um, I quit Rolling Stone and took a job at VH1, which was a disaster mostly. But there were some high points, including going to Jamaica to do like a one-on-one interview with Keith Richards. And, um, I, uh, you know, it was, you know, uh, VH1 in typical fashion, like had booked, you know, this kind of resort, you know, for us to do the interview and like, we're on this, like, you know, very well manicured place. And, um, uh, they set up two chairs for like Keith and me and, you know, we had a conversation. It was perfectly fine. And um, afterwards, you know, it was just kind of hanging around and Keith just said, you know, this isn't really what my life is like here. And I said, well, what is your life like? And he goes, well, it's just, it's very different from this. You know, you should come up to my house. And I said, uh, oh, you know, I mean, all of us or, you know, what? And he goes, yeah, you know, come on up and uh, let's film up there. So, you know, keeping a film crew in a foreign country for an extra day was, you know, a little bit of a trick. Um, But, you know, I was not going to, 
allow that not to happen. <laughs> um, and then he fell out of a tree. And no. <laughs> we went out to his house and um, uh, he had just done that Wingless Angels album. You know, these kind of like strange, kind of like almost um, Jamaican versions of Episcopalian hymns. I mean, it was it's pretty wild uh, and interesting stuff. And a lot of the musicians who sang on that record were like hanging out at Keith's house. Uh, and um, Keith came out and, you know, met us. And um, when we went into the house, he just said, um, he, uh, he held open his hand and there were two spliffs in it. And he goes, you know, he goes, Anthony, you know, do you still smoke this stuff? I said, yeah, you know, I do from time to time. And he goes, well, you should smoke one now. It's important down here. <laughs> Which I thought was just a great kind of, like, we're not just merely getting high. Like, we're, you know, we're in a culture where this is, like, significant. Um, so, you know, so I did. And then we, like, filmed this interview, and Keith took me on a tour of his house, which was just sensational. This footage is available um, from time to time on uh, on YouTube, it keeps popping up and keeps getting pulled down. But it was like there's this. It's called Keith Richards VH1 one on one, and uh, you know you see me like walking around Keith's house, and you know he's telling stories like he goes, you know, like over there is um, goes that's where the thieves break in, and then he just stops a beat and then just goes. And over there is where we buried them. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it's kind of um, uh, amazing kind of sense of, uh, you know, really being at Keith Richards house, you know, all these musicians just hanging around. Uh, it felt very much like a kind of musician scene, you know, it didn't seem like, you know, I mean, Patty wasn't there. The kids weren't there. It was um, unforgettable and uh, and a huge amount of fun. So that's probably my best Rolling Stone story. Uh, you know, um, there are times, uh, you know, being around Mick Jagger is a trip. You know, like, I mean, he just, uh, of all of the rock stars and various other famous people I've ever met, um, there's just no one that has his sense of, kind of personal command, you know, like, um, you know, it's sort of like, like if Mick looks across the room, like five people get up and go, is there something you need? Is something you would like? <laughs> nice. something? Is there something you would you know, want? And he's actually sort of very casual, sort of in the middle of all that. Um, there's only a handful of people in this world that have been that famous for that long, well, you know, that are still alive too. I mean, you've got like a Ringo star and a Paul McCartney, and who else? I mean, there's, there's probably a couple, but like I'm talking about like just that ubiquitous for so many years. And as far as musicians go, yeah. Just in general though that. too, but yeah, but, but yeah, musicians mostly. Yeah. There's like also, you know, there's just this element about him. I mean, when, you know, there's the famous restaurant in New York Elaine's that, um, uh, closed down, you know, whatever it was 10 or 15 years ago, maybe, maybe not that long ago, but seems like it. Um, and they were, they were interviewing Elaine, you know, it was a famous place that famous people went to all the time. And the whole point was 
you know, famous people come in here and like, nobody's supposed to make a big fuss. And, um, I remember this reporter asked her, well, you know, we all know what the ethic at Elaine was, Elaine's was like, but, um, you know, was there ever anybody who came in and, and it just felt different? She goes, yeah, you know, when Mick Jagger came, it totally felt different. You know, <laughs> it has that like level of, um, kind of aura, you know, and, you know, look, he likes it. I mean, he enjoys it. Like, he's never going to let up, you know, that, you know, you know, um, he's, uh, you know, he's got his three-year-old son and his 32-year-old girlfriend. And he's he having a three-year-old a- son? He does. Oh, my God. Do you want my favorite Stone story in wow. that regards? Is, we should go to a song after this, but didn't Bill Wyman marry the daughter of the wife of his son is that true yes he did indeed okay so bill bill wyman's i don't know who was first but how did that work down the um i think the son was first so bill wyman's son married this woman and then bill wyman married that woman's daughter correct the his (laughs) wait he married his son's wife's daughter that is correct. What? <laughs> so there's this old song on that we have on like this old Grand Old Opry like record called "I'm My Own Grandpa," <laughs> and it's this whole. It's a, that's what that makes me think of is that song. The I can't break down the what you know what the relationships are in a situation like that, but yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Let's go to a song. We I had I'd asked Anthony to pick three Rolling Stone songs to share with us tonight. So why don't you tell us what the first one is, and then when we come back to it, we can talk about why you picked it, and we can discuss it a little bit. Oh, okay. Uh, the first one I picked is "Gimme Shelter." Sweet. Okay, let's check it out, and we'll be back in a minute.
Uh, well, we just listened to uh, Gimme Shelter, and I, I picked that one. I wanted to pick one song that I thought you know people would know and, and be really interested in. Um, you know, to me, it's one of the most dramatic of the Rolling Stones songs. Um, and it has a, a very interesting um, kind of personal history with the band, as well as, uh, you know, a very important cultural history. Um, the personal history is that um, Keith sort of wrote the opening verse. He was playing like sort of, you know, just like doing some Jimmy Reed riffs on an acoustic guitar at a friend's house while looking out a window. Uh, was storming in London, you know, raining, uh, you know, very powerfully. And people were racing around sort of in a panic. So that, oh, that, you know, oh, the storm is threatening my very life today. Uh, if I don't get some shelter, oh, I'm going to fade away. You know, it was a, a verse that Keith came up with. And, um, but like sort of lurking behind that was also this kind of, sense of dread he was feeling because um, his girlfriend, Anita Pallenberg, had gotten cast in this movie with uh, Mick Jagger called Performance. Uh, it's a very sexually charged film. And, uh, uh, you know, rumors are that, you know, Keith, that Mick and uh, Anita had an affair during the filming of this movie. Uh, whether they did or not, Keith was suspicious and concerned. So the the sense of sort of uh, dread, I think, that we hear at the beginning is a little bit of that. Um, as often happened, um, you know, like uh, the Stones would write songs, often Keith come up with a riff, come up with like some lines, like, you know, with, um, you know, he also kind of came up with the, uh, for Wild Horses, he wrote the first verse about his son, Marlon. You know, childhood living is easy to do. The things you want, and I bought them. Then he gave the song to Mick Jagger, who wrote the rest of it about Mary and Faithful. Um, in this case, he gave the song to Mick Jagger, and Jagger wrote the rest of it kind of about kind of cultural observations. You know, ooh, see the fire that's sweeping our very streets today. Burns like a red coal carpet. Mad bulls lost his way war children it's just a shot away you know in that sense of 1969 that was a period that um that sort of reminds me of what the present is like you know things were really tipping you know there was uh, you know i mean young people however romantically were talking about things like revolution very seriously um you know, campuses were erupting. The Vietnam War was raging um, in 1969. There were 550,000 American troops in Vietnam, a country that's the size of California. So, um, you know, the song kind of captures the, the dread uh, of that moment. And... Um, yeah, there's also that amazing kind of duet that Mick Jagger does with uh, a background singer named Mary Clayton, who was an R&B singer whom they called in the middle of the night. Uh, they were in Los Angeles, and producer Jimmy Miller was working uh, with the band. And, uh, you know, they said, you know, God, you know, we should have, you know, it would be great to have like a great 
like female vocalists do this. And somebody recommended Mary Clayton. They called her up. She was not somebody who knew very much at all about the Rolling Stones. She was sleeping. She was pregnant. Um, uh, showed up in curlers and in the middle of the night. And, you know, they, you know, gave her these lyrics, you know, rape, murder, it's just a shot away. Rape, murder, it's just a shot away. You know, all of this stuff. And so, you know, she was, you know, like she got her performance, uh, you know, spine together and just like, I'm just going to blow these guys away. And so like, you know, she does her part and you can hear her voice crack at one point in her vocal, which in the genius of producers at that time, nobody corrected, you know, it, it just caught such a moment and you can hear Jagger, you know, right after that happens, just go like, woo, you know, like they're all feeling the sort of heat of that performance. Um, everybody does talk about Mary Clayton's uh, performance uh, very understandably, but, you know, a few years back, all of the uh, kind of isolated um, instrumental and vocal tracks uh, were put up on YouTube and you could just go listen to Keith's guitar, you know, which is pretty incredible. Uh, but you could, and you can listen to Mary Clayton's vocal, which is extraordinary, but you could also listen to Jagger's vocal and he is singing his ass off. You know, he's somebody, you know, I think, because of his celebrity and fame and um, people kind of rarely think of him as a singer or a musician. Uh, he happens to be very good at both uh, a great blues harmonica player and uh, a, a truly extraordinary vocalist. And he is singing his ass off. And so all of the energy um, of those performances comes through on this track. And, you know, of course it became the title of the movie about Altamont, which was, you know, one of the many deaths of the sixties. And, um, uh, you know, it was a song that captured a particular moment and, you know, that give me shelter never loses its immediacy for me. I mean, there are songs I always, I can recognize as great, but I need to, you know, it's hard to even just hear them anymore. Um, that is not true with Gimme Shelter, at least for me. Every time I hear it, it sounds like right there, like on your skin. Yeah, I have a um, list of um, great songs I never need to hear again. And, <laughs> like, like Imagine by John yeah. Lennon. Imagine by John Lennon. Lennon. I love it. Don't ever need to hear it again. Moon Dance by Van Morrison. Don't need to it ever hear like it again. It smells like Teen Spirit. It is... That's my. That's the one that anytime that comes on, I'm like, I I can't anymore. I there's nothing else I'm gonna ring out of that song at this point in time. But "Give Me Shelter" is one you're right, Anthony. You can listen to over and over yeah. again. And it's just. And um, I was thinking of uh, other you know classic rock songs that have a, a female soul vocalist that's as good as that one. And the only other one I'm coming up with is maybe "The Great Gig in the Sky" by Pink yeah, Floyd. Yeah, that's exactly uh, what I was saying. Is um, you know, she's not even using words in that one. But who is singing on that? Or? I don't even know. I'll have to look it up in, in the in the meantime. But it's uh, it's yeah. it's amazing. Um, but I, I I for my film class or my music history class that I'm teaching this year, I am ending 
with, I'm probably going to end with Abbey Road, just to end it on like an up note, but I, I was going to end with uh, Let It Bleed and having them watch Gimme Shelter because they've already seen the Monterey Pop. Yeah. And we're going to watch the Woodstock film, and you know, everyone's happy. Yeah. You, know, you got Brian Jones kind of parading around in the Monterey Pop, like not even performing. Yeah. Woodstock has kind of got some good stuff and a little bit of bad stuff in it. And then you got like a guy getting stabbed to death and like people like tripping out and rolling naked through the crowd. I mean, Eric, you had just seen, I mean, I've seen Gimme Shelter hundreds, of, I feel like a hundred times. I've seen it so many times because I've taught it before in film yeah. classes, but Eric just watched it for the first time maybe two weeks ago, right? Yeah. And, and we had just watched the Monterey Pop because it's all, they're both on the Criterion uh, channel. And so, those did they happen in the? Those were in the same year. No, was Monterey Pop a, few, a year before? Of each other. They what? Uh, Altamont and Woodstock happened within four months of each. Yeah, year. but the Monterey Pop was sixty-seven, I think. Oh, right? Monterey Pop. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Was it sixty-six or sixty-seven? It was one of those two years. Seven. Sixty-seven. Yeah. yeah. So yes, yeah, so, that was wild to me to realize that that Woodstock was. I didn't realize Woodstock and Altamont were in the same four months. I yeah. mean, that's just insane. But yeah, so we, I watched it and I, you know, I kind of knew what it was. I knew what it was about, but, um, I was not, uh, I was not prepared for just how much of a kind of horror movie it really was. Cause it's just like, yeah. it's so palpable throughout how just dark things felt. When things were really falling apart and, you know, like Jagger just says to Keith, like, you know, like, like stop it, Keith, let me talk to them. And he's attempting to address the audience and like, it just is not working, you know, like it, it, you know, when he's doing that brothers, sisters, who's fighting, what for, you know, like, and, um, there's a dog walking around on the stage. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I was just about to mention that, that the dog just walking across the stage was extraordinary, <laughs> just extraordinary. You know, um, you really had a sense of, uh, you know, watching Marty Balin getting knocked out uh, as the Jefferson airplane was performing, you know, by the Hells Angels. And, you know, it was horrific. Um, you know, so, yeah, uh, I mean, that movie is, I've shown it, I've taught it too. And, uh, man, uh Again, that it still has a lot of impact. It's it's still very chilling. Yeah, I've trioed um, a hard day's night. Don't look back, and that movie. Oh, it kind of just like is because uh, oh, oh, yeah. all three of those acts are just you know Dylan and the and the Beatles and the Stones are just like the, the three huge acts. And so I've done that in the past in, in a film class, but in the history context, like now that they've been my students have been studying like nineteen sixty three sixty nine, it's just such a I mean, I mean, there's so much in that movie, but just like the crowd at the end is just insane. Like, like Eric and I were talking about the dude having like the trip on the side of the stage. I think it's during Under My Thumb. I can't remember what song it is. Kind of like all, yeah. you know, well, the guy there. earlier too that's just like writhing on the ground. It's just it feels it feels very. Uh, you're just like it's uncomfortable, and, and like, and I have to wonder. I mean, and, and Jagger gets like punched in the face like early on. As soon as they landed, uh, as soon as they were going to their. Uh, you know, to their trailer. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, you know, the whole thing was very out of control. And like the movie makes clear to, you know, how the organization of the festival, you know, this idea that you could move this thing, you know, two, three times in the course of a couple of days, 
you know, was just, I mean, that great Mel, Melvin Belli, the famous lawyer who's representing the Stones and, you know, talking to the guy who owns, um, uh, you know, the Altamont Speedway and he goes, well, you know, you, you want to do it for publicity and, you know, the Rolling Stones are doing it for charity. So I'll take the money. <laughs> I was just like, wow. <laughs> it's really just amazing. That guy and uh, Albert Grossman are almost like doppelgangers in a way, it seems like. the. I mean, the great, uh, I mean, the kind of thing that gets lost in all of the big themes of the movie is that is some of the best live footage of the Rolling Stones also. Like the early stuff at Madison Square Garden and, you know, it's just that band. I mean, I saw one of those shows at Madison Square Garden that year and, um, you know, it was incredible. They, you know, that band was, um, uh, you know, that was one of the greatest rock bands ever to perform, you know, and, and, and they got some of that, like that version of Satisfaction, and, uh, you know, that's in the, uh, you know, the earlier part of the film is very, very strong. For as good as they were in the movie, Tina Turner blows away. I feel like, I'm sorry, just like, she's well, so yeah, amazing. You know, it was, you know, you know, look, it was there. I mean, look, they put it in the movie, you know, like they, yeah. you know, they had her open it. Yeah. Well, I can Tina Turner, as a matter of fact, yeah. uh, open the, open for them. I mean, when I saw the show at um, Madison Square Garden, it was like Tina Turner, B.B. King, and the Rolling Stones, and the opening act for everybody was Terry Reed. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so it was quite a night of music. Um, it's it's fascinating to me on that, just like kind of going back, uh, you, you were talking about how they, they seem to have a really uh, good, Jagger and Richards had this, seem to have this really good songwriting relationship where they're they were able to hand things back and forth and they were somehow like i'm always fascinated by how people manage to not let their egos get in the way and still you know they, they collaborated on a lot of stuff which is amazing to me and obviously they've had that push and pull over you know through their their lives of like you know ego overshadowing it but like you know i'm curious like how you know, was that like pretty common for them to just really be like handing these things back and forth like that? Where like where Jagger or where Richards would come in with something and say like, "Here, take this and run with it." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Keith is not um, particularly masterful lyric writer. Uh, Jagger is a very underrated lyric writer, uh, but you know, I mean, Keith would come up with a riff and come up with an idea. And then it was, you know, Jagger's to finish. You know, I think at their best back then, I mean, look, they've had a million fights and the band almost broke up any number of times um, because of, you know, their differences that they had. But I think at their best, um, they both understood what they did well and what they didn't do well. You know, I mean... (laughs) I remember talking to Keith one time about Exile on Main Street. Um, and uh, I was saying, you know, the thing that everybody says, like Jagger's vocals are, um, yeah, they're not like out front. They're kind of buried in the mix. They're like recorded like an instrument. And, uh, and Keith just says, he goes, well, that's good. 
He goes, you know, that you could feel his pushing himself. He's trying to impose himself on the track. He goes, you know, it's just he's a member of a band. He goes, just because you're the one up front dancing in a frock doesn't mean like you're more important than anybody else. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, Keith understood that. Uh, you know, I think, I don't think Jagger would have put it exactly that way, but I think, <laughs> you know, he understood, uh, you know, I, I was talking to him about Exile on one time. I was saying, you know, I, uh, you know, I keep coming back to it. I said, you know, I've never looked up the lyrics to all those songs. You know, I said, you know, it's one of the things that keeps bringing me back to it. You know, I pick up a line here and I pick up a line there. You know, I, I said, you know, I said, like, you know, what, you know, you know, do you, you know, what do you, what do you listen for when you when you hear the album? And he just said, I know what all the lyrics are. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, there was a kind of sense of um, they both. Um, you know, in, in recent tours, uh, you know, I'd say for the last 10 years, I've understood, you know, their legacy depends on the Rolling Stones. You know, I mean, Keith, I think, always understood that. I think Jagger finally came to accept it. And so, you know, you know, people will argue this, you know, the Stones still are an incredible live band. And, um, you know, I mean, how long they're going to be able to continue to do it? You know, I mean, Jagger had this heart surgery, you know, and was back out there a month later, you know. There was footage of him dancing in a mirror that, you know, I know that the, the Holly Perrick and I wouldn't be able to dance at that level. And he's like 76, 77 years old or whatever. <laughs> and he's like coming off of like open heart or like open heart surgery and he's back at it. It's Oh, man, like, you know, I was, I had tickets and I was bringing, I'm going to bring my daughter to the opening show of that tour which got postponed because of Jagger's illness. So I was, I was paying very close attention to that tour and, you know, the opening date got moved to Chicago. And so the next morning I got up and just to see, you know, and of course, I mean, there was a million uh, things there. They opened the show with street fighting man. And um, it was very, very interesting, you know, because, you know, they had like this kind of B stage set up in a ramp, and ordinarily Jagger really wouldn't use the rap until sort of the middle of the show, but about like halfway through uh, street fighting man, he just went like racing down this ramp, like as if to say to this, you know, stadium full of people, like, don't worry about me, man, I got this. <laughs> and, um, it was like, really, it was very, like I'd seen Leonard Cohen a couple of times live towards the end. And he made a point to run onto the stage and skip off after like yeah. three hours. Um, we're going to go to another song in a minute here. Um, just one thing I wanted to touch on that before we get to your next song. Uh, and it's the thing that you had mentioned before about the, the push pull between Keith and, and Mick is, it's real interesting when you look at the early Rolling Stone album covers and watch like old footage, like the Tammy show, for example, yeah. the jockeying for position between Mick and Brian Jones in terms of, because if you look at some of the early album covers, it almost looks like Brian Jones is like the guy, you know? Yeah, that's true. And uh, I remember the first time I saw the band uh, at the Academy of Music, which was like a, you know, like a theater. Where is it? 
on 14th Street in Manhattan. It doesn't exist okay. anymore, unfortunately. Um, it's NYU dorms, as a matter of fact. Now. But um, it you know, was a theater where you know you could go see bands, and you know it was an afternoon show on a Saturday, and you know, and I remember you know like there's a local disc jockey who was introducing them and. And he says, now, you know, we're going to see, you know, Bill Wyman. Yay. You know, Charlie Watts, you know, um, uh, Keith Richards, you know, uh, Brian Jones and Mick Jagger. And, you know, there was this like huge applause for Mick Jagger. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking precisely what you were saying. He's like, oh, wow. Like Mick Jagger is the guy. Like, like, cause I was like, you know, from now I used to, even back then when I was, you know, just a very young teenager, um, I would buy these English magazines. I mean, living in Greenwich Village, I could find that stuff. And, uh, you know, Brian, you know, in all the photographs and everything else, and he, you know, was the founder of the band. And, you know, he also had the look, you know, like the long blonde hair is very beautiful. Whereas, you know, Jagger was so kind of like, a very unconventional looking guy, you know, the big lips and the must up hair and all those other stuff. Like, um, but of course, you know, Jagger was the front man. And, uh, I, that was when I learned that. I mean, it was like that moment. I was just like, wow. You know, Brian Jones always looks so tired. <laughs> like whenever I see pictures of him, I'm like, man, that guy looks like he's just exhausted. <laughs> No, we had like five kids or something. Like that. <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it. Uh, <laughs> you know, used every drug known to now. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you tell us what the next song is and we'll go to another break and then we'll talk about it when we come back. Okay. Um, so the next two are kind of uh, in relative obscurities. Uh, they're included on, um, you know, kind of outtakes record for uh, some girls. I wrote the liner notes for uh, the Some Girls box set and, uh, you know, so I was paid some attention to these tracks. Um, and w the, the first one I want to play is, um, it's called No Spare Parts. So it's, uh, you know, it's originally recorded, um, you know, I guess in around Seven, and then they, you know, they souped it up, you know, when they, um, you know, they went in, Jagger did new vocals and wrote new lyrics and, uh, you know, they fixed up the guitar stuff and everything else. So I think it's like really a superb Rolling Stone song. So I uh, wanted to share it. All right, we'll check it out and we will be back in a moment.
and I always find a way to get through. I take the tender thing he's been to somebody just heard no spare parts um you know and as i mentioned it was a song the stones wrote and uh initially recorded around 1977 there are versions from that period uh you know that are circulating but i like this kind of souped up one where they took it and really uh you know kind of did it as if they were recording it for an album they were putting out now which in fact you know they were it was an album of uh you know songs that uh, you know, accompanied, you know, the uh, the songs that went on, Some Girls. What I like about No Spare Parts, I mean, I always like, um, you know, the range of the Rolling Stones, uh, you know, like, and this is the country version of the band. 
Um, you know, there's a kind of laziness to the groove. And um, Jagger really kind of tells a story. You know, uh, I this is my speculation. I don't know that this is correct. It seems to me a story of, you know, his relationship with Jerry Hall was sort of beginning around this time. You know, he talks about driving around in Texas and going out in L.A., I imagine, to see her, but it's obviously to see some girl. And, um, you know, he describes, you know, driving on the 10 freeway and, you know, I saw the lights of Marfa, you know. uh, You know, when I got to Sirona, the sun was shining in my eyes. Yeah, there's a kind of, um, uh, you know, I describe Jacker's lyric writing as, you know, kind of underrated, because there's kind of such a casualness to it at its best. Um, yeah, they're just like spoken words, you know. I got lost in Del Rio. I'm, I'm, my map was kind of out of date, is one of the lines in this song. Or, you know, um, you know, in that line about Sonora, when I when when I came to Sonora, the sun was shining in my eyes. The air with the aircon busted, the windshield full of flies. You know, you don't think of Mick Jagger. You know, even back then, being in situations like that, but like <laughs> that is, uh, manages to kind of invoke it. You know, when I uh, when I when when the tire got busted, I I I, I was glad I wore my western boots. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you kidding, Mick? You're not <laughs> fixing you. You haven't fixed a tire in sixty he likes years. He likes to drive. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's unlikely that he would have fixed a tire on the side of the road. Uh, and um and, you know and even as the song is like a, a song of longing and desire you know um uh i felt so hot to see i set off the fire alarm one of the kind of lines uh you know at the beginning of the song you know jerry hall was younger than mick uh you know there's a the first lines of the song are um your daddy drank himself half to death when he was 39 years old, but I hope I don't seem like a father to you. And it, it, there seemed like a kind of vulnerability to that, like a sense of your age and relationship to a woman that you're seeing. Um, but like Jagger only ever allows himself to get so vulnerable. Like when you get to the chorus, it's just, honey, I ain't accustomed to lose. When I want something bad enough, I always find a way to get through. And like, there's a kind of edge, like even with the Rolling Stones, like love ballads, there's always like, as with Dylan, there's always a kind of, um, a friend of mine called them songs of taunting regret. You know, that there's this element of like, I'm not going to quite give it all up. Um, but, um, musically it's a very stone song. I mean, the, the groove is so kind of like greasy and, you know, there's that great sort of slide guitar and, you know, Keith's rhythm and the drumming is just sensational. Um, And so it's a song that not many people, you know, seem to know. I mean, there are Stones fanatics, of course, who know it. And, you know, they, in their view that the 77 version is better, but I, I do not agree. Um, You know, I've, I've, really like this version a lot yeah i think on the youtube like when i was when i was on youtube when i was looking it up it said 77 version better 
But um, I'm glad you picked this song. And there's a reason there's a reason I'm glad you picked this song. And it's something that's always fascinated me and frustrated me about Mick Jagger. And it's when he does his country song songs, he has these two vocal modes. He's got like the honest, straightforward version, like, for example, in like Wild Horses. And then he's got like this jokey shit kicker vocal he's, that he does he's laying for like, it on so thick like faraway eyes and a country honk. And maybe uh, Sweet Virginia maybe falls under that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, I, but it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's part of me wishes he'd played straight. And this song, I couldn't determine which iteration of Mick it was because it started out kind of like the jokey. It goes uh, back and forth a little bit, especially by the end. It seems to like feel a little bit, a little bit more sincere. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's very interesting. I think, I mean, I think Jagger sees country as kind of Keith's world, you know, and, uh, like when he's when he's doing that stuff, I think there's a, almost an element of um, you know, look at at its best, you know, something like uh, Dead Flowers. I mean, he just sort of delivers it. But I think you know, um, at other times, I think he feels uncomfortable and and then reaches for irony or like you know, kind of satirizes it, and that typically doesn't work very well. You know, in faraway eyes. I mean, I, you know, that's problematic there. Yeah, I mean, Dead Flowers is so country that Townsend Saint does a cover of it. Yeah, just that's right. Sounds amazing, right? So, um, exactly. in fact, ran across uh, online somewhere. I was tempted to, or it was actually on, on WFUV, the local um, Fordham University radio station, which I listen to pretty regularly. Somebody. Um, described mentioned it as a Towns Van Zandt song. And I was <laughs> quite tempted to call in. <laughs> um, you know, so there are some the people will figure that out for themselves. It's uh, funny, like like I, I I might have told the story on the show before, like a long time ago, but it's funny how like the cover versions sometimes take the place, you know, in the in like kind of I don't think this one necessarily, but I remember like I was when I was maybe in middle school or eighth grade, ninth grade, somewhere there, but I was record shopping in the in New Hope, New, New, uh, Pennsylvania, at a record store. And this song came on and I remember thinking, who the hell is singing this version of Rod Stewart's downtown train with such an awful voice? Like, why is he doing this? And little did I know, you know, I didn't know who Tom Waits was at that point. And I thought it was Rod Stewart's song because, you know, it was all over the radio and stuff. Like that. And I was young. But well, the uh, thing with, um, with, uh, uh, you know, not to get distracted by uh, dead flowers, but there, I mean, there's another example of like, you know, like he's, you know, Jagger is describing this character who's, you know, obviously literally strung out uh, as a result of, you know, this girl leaving him. And, you know, the song is pretty lively nonetheless, but there still is that verse, you know, because I'll, you know, I'll be in my basement room with a needle and a spoon and another girl to take my pain away. You know, it's just like, you know, I'm not, I'm not just going to give you, you know, I'm a wreck as a result of your leaving, you know, uh, like, you know, I'm not turning into a monk as a result of that. See, I always, I always thought he was, I assumed that was like a key thing that Keith had written some of these lyrics and he was talking about hair. I mean, I assumed he was talking directly about heroin being the one, the girl taking him away. Yeah. Well, you know, I wonder if maybe Keith did, but like, you know, even if Keith wrote it, um, uh, you know, Jagger wouldn't have to sing it if he didn't want to. 
Yeah, that line reminds me of uh, she said, my breasts will always be open. Baby can rest your weary head right on me. And there'll always be a space in my parking lot when you need a little coke and sympathy. I mean, it's just that's like it's, it's, it sounds just like that one. Um, that's totally. I mean, I don't know. I mean, in this day and age, I don't know if these guys would be able to get away with oh, writing. Oh, Absolutely not. Absolutely not. As a as a younger person who only really became aware of the Stones a little bit later in life, not, not later in life, but, you know, comparatively later than any of y'all, um, it's shocking. <laughs> Some of the lyrics in the songs. Yeah, um, but I mean, I don't know, like in a, on an album track, I mean, with a band like The National not write a lyric like, I mean, maybe they wouldn't, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, but he's got that one line about, I've got to stop thinking about my dick or something like that. Doesn't he, the national? <laughs> maybe so. It's off box. You know what I'm talking about, Holly? I think so. The one that the song is like standing at the punch bowl, swallowing punch, uh, whatever that song. I want to, I want to hurry home to you. The, the, one of the lines is like, I got to stop thinking about my dick. I think, uh, slow song. I think the name is, I don't know. Uh, slow, slow, slow national slow song. Oh, that's, that never <laughs> <No. found it. laughs> <laughs> Anthony, let's go to your next song so we can talk about that. And then we can wrap up. Cause I know we're uh, pushing time here. Okay. Um, my next song is also from the, uh, uh, from this uh, Some Girls Outtakes album. Um, and it's called Keep Up Blues. Um, you know, well, I'll, I'll, you know, maybe let's listen to it and I'll, I'll, I'll discuss it afterward. Okay, we'll be back in a few.
All right, we just heard Keep Up Blues by the Rolling Stones. It was um, another song that was an outtake uh, from you know the sessions that they did for some girls. And uh, when the Stones put out the box set uh, for this album, I think it was in 2012, they um, you know they went back and kind of souped it up. Jagger wrote some new lyrics, and uh, you know they re-recorded the guitar parts and all this other stuff. Um, what I like about it. Is like you know, uh, yeah, I mean, there's another aspect. I mean, with um, uh, with no spare parts, obviously, we got the country stones, and here we got the bluesy stones. And um, you know, there's a kind of like you know, grinding quality to it, uh, that I really enjoy. And I really like this particular thing about when the stones, um, when when you can't really tell who's playing what, you know, like the guitar parts are blending together. Uh, Jagger's harmonica is blending together in there. And it just sounds like the parts just sound so inextricable. Um, and so there's a real groove to it, but the song is also like really funny. Uh, you know, some girls uh, was the Stones' first great New York album. I mean, Mick and Keith had had moved to New York by that point, uh, although the record was recorded in Paris. Um, and uh, but they were writing about you know like New York and you know a song like Shattered, for example, you know gets at you know New York kind of falling apart and having economic troubles and all this other stuff. So Keep Up Blues is in that spirit. You know, oh, the rent is high. Mick Jagger complains, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the rent is high. And, uh, you know, um, he sort of jokes about, like, you know, like his, his uh, you know, his interest in clothing and fashion, you know, it's, you know, uh, you try to describe me this soon. He goes, oh, it's real tied in the butt, you know, and, um, and the last verse, I think it's the last verse, is that he describes, you know, this girl, he goes, um, I got a new actress. She ain't been in much except for filling a cocktail bar. But she she got a break. She got a star in part. And then he just interjects in a movie. And, uh, <laughs> that's a very sort of uncharacteristic, like, Jagger gesture. I mean, he's not often, like, funny in songs, you know. Um and uh, so, like, you know, hearing him sort of enjoy himself, uh, you know, with this song that, you know, still gets at this, uh, you know, this element of, uh, you know, if I don't watch out, I'll be pushing a, a shopping cart. You know, like this kind of sense of, uh, you know, you got to keep up, baby, keep up with the times, uh, you know, that things are, are, you know, New York is a kind of harsh environment. And, uh and you know the economy was was struggling, and uh, you know they're kind of getting at that. And again, in the same way that as in Shattered, where you know they're dealing with it, but it's you know it's not it's not Bruce Springsteen writing the river. You know it's you know th- you know they're kind of like having some fun with it at the same time. It's kind of hard to take someone like Mick Jagger singing the blues about money. You know <laughs> seriously. <laughs> It's true. Um, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of interested, um, before we let you go, like, I'm always like, sometimes we, we have the guests pick the songs really is topic dependent. 
Um, and, and this is not like a diss on him in any means, so don't take it that way. But like we had Chris France on from the Rolling Stones, and they were like, pick any songs that you talking want. Talking heads, you mean? Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, what am I talking to? I told you, it's the Pfizer. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we had we'll Chris France. We'll blame that. Yeah, we had Chris France from the Talking Heads on, and I'm like, pick any songs that you want. And he picked Burning Down the House. What was the others? I know he did. Uh, well, the topic was was specifically around Stax Records. Yeah. So that oh. was part of what what guided it. So he picked Burning Down the House. He picked the Bohannon, whatever the hell that song is. Um, Bohannon, Bohannon. What's, what's the name of that song? Uh, something about... Oh he oh he picked uh, Tom Tom Club Genius Tom Tom of Club. Love Genius of Love and then what was the third song he uh, picked Green Onions that's right okay and you oh, know right and I'm just wondering I'm like you know so I said like I was talking to him beforehand I'm like are you sure you want to pick these and they're, they're like everyone knows these songs do you want to do anything obscure and he said no these are obscure enough you know and I'm always curious like uh, and then we had someone on uh, Martin C who was a writer we did the whole episode about Peter Gabriel and he was he didn't pick anything super famous with Peter Gabriel did he it was pretty deep stuff. I think uh, so, yeah. So I'm just curious, like, what you wrestled with in your selection of the three songs and, like, what else, like, would you yeah, recommend I, for someone out there who is not a huge Stones fan and wants to wants to be, you know? Oh, yeah, you know, I thought... Um, I, you know, honestly, I mostly thought of what it would be fun for me to talk about, you know? Um, I felt, uh, you know, Giving Shelter was important. You know, what? isn't just a great stone song it was important and i thought well it would be good to have a song that's that's really important and the other two i just you know you don't get a chance to talk about songs like that too much and i thought well if you're gonna give me a chance to come on and talk about anything i want okay you know i mean but i i went through you know i thought about doing one of the early sort of r&b things that the stones did i really thought about doing their fantastic version of mona the Bo Diddley song uh, that's on the Rolling Stones now. And I also thought about, uh, only because I had a great story to go along with it, um, they did a fantastic cover of a Hank Snow song called I'm Moving On. It's live, and they just tear the shit out of it. And uh, I remember having a discussion online with a friend of mine named Andy McLennan, who was in Nashville. He was a huge country music fan and a huge Stones fan. He was saying, like, that was the beginning of country rock. That was the real beginning of country rock. The Stones, you know, doing a Hank Snow song in 1965. And I said, you know, you know look, man, I, I sort of get it. But, you know, the Beatles had done country songs before that. And also, I said, how would the Stones have heard Hank Snow? Like, you know, like, it, you know, he wasn't one of the more famous, you know, country guys. But as it happened... That week, I was interviewing Keith Richards about, you know, for some reason or other. And so at the end of the interview, I just said, hey, you know, look, I've been having this discussion, you know, with a friend of mine, you know, like uh, we were listening, we were discussing, you know, like, I'm moving on. And, you know, like, where did you get it? Like, you know, were you listening to Hank Snow? And Keith just says, no, man, we got it from Ray Charles. It was Ray Charles had done it on uh, Modern Sounds and Country and Western Music. And that makes much more sense. You know, I mean, they rock the shit out of it. It's it's unlike either Hank Snow's version or Ray Charles's version, but that they would have gotten it from Ray Charles. It was just like, wow. And it was just so much fun 
to have an occasion where you like, you know, you're having one of those conversations with a friend and you're thinking like, you know, how is this ever going to be resolved? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay. I'll ask <laughs> and, uh, you know, he just delivered. It, I mean, it's pretty ballsy for them to um, cover Mona. I feel like, I mean, it's a, yeah. Yeah. They, they do a good job with it, but um, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty standard for Bo Diddley, isn't it? Like one of his signature songs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they went after that stuff very hard, you know? Um, yeah, I'm looking... Sorry. Oh, no, I was just trying to think about what other songs I thought about talking about. I'm, I'm looking at the, the set list of that show I saw in 2002, actually, it was at the Roseland, and they did a lot of covers, I remember. They did um, Somebody Needs... Or Everybody Needs Somebody to Love. Oh, God, yeah. That used to they be did, number, yeah. They did That's How Strong My Love Is, the first time since 66 at that show. I did, I do it in 65 yeah they <laughs> did uh going to a go-go oh uh they okay. did ain't too proud the bag first time since 76 and oh, they did fun. uh rock me baby with johnny lang who opened for them played with that song too so ah, that's cool that's yeah. I mean, it was like almost a fun new york show too i mean yeah it was 20 i'm looking at it's like 21 songs the first time they ever did she smiles sweetly live um oh. was at that show Ordinary. Yeah. Yes. Buttons. Yeah. So um, just to wrap up, I mean, so Holly and, and, and Eric and I were chatting on our little chat in between and we're talking about like, um, you know, Holly's not the, the biggest Stones fan. Uh, which albums would you recommend for someone who, who is like wanting to get into the band? Because I mean, there's so many different iterations of them, but if we're looking at like albums versus just like songs, like where would you start? Uh, for someone who was trying to get into them. I mean, look, I mean, even though the early Stones albums are essential, you know, to my mind, to an understanding of whatever rock and roll has become, um, I would probably start. I mean, the, the Stones' strongest period, it seems to me, is between 1968 and 1972. Uh, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, and uh, Exile. Um, so I might start... Excuse me, I might start with uh, Sticky Fingers. Pardon me. Um, you know, uh, it gets at a lot of what the Stones do, but it's extremely accessible. And then, you know, if you're of a mind to, you can, you know, move forward into, um, you know, Exile on Main Street, which is thick and dense and, uh, you know, kind of... I mean, even as I regard it as the greatest rock and roll album ever made, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Like it, you know, and you know, it doesn't have hits, you know, like there's just, you know, it's kind of an insider's record. It uh, sounds gritty as hell too. Con I mean, considering where they were in their career at that time to make something that just sounds like that raw still is amazing to me. There was a great moment in, um, I'm not a musician, so I can't really describe exactly what this is, but, um, on like in the documentary that goes along with like, you know, the fancy extended version of, uh, exile that came out, um, you know, a few years ago, there's an interview with Jack White and Jack White is talking about this song called ventilator blues, which I also considered talking about here, which is on exile. And he was describing Charlie Watts's drumming and evidently like 
Charlie Watts has talked about this too, and I can't describe exactly what he does, but like it's kind of not what you would expect a drummer to do, even though the song sounds like so basic, you know, and Jack White was saying the first time I heard that song, it drove me fucking crazy. <laughs> like, why isn't he doing the thing that he should be doing? Like, it's just making me insane. He goes, now it's my favorite thing on that album. And like, there are so many moments like that on Exile, you know, where that are just so idiosyncratic. Um, you know, so, you, you know, you have to be of a mind to like want to get in and explore all that. But I think, you know, I mean, uh, I, I would listen to, um, to Sticky Fingers and, uh, you know, see where that leaves you and then you can go backwards or you can go forwards. You know, it's it's funny. Uh, I, we were also talking about this in our little group chat. Um, before we recorded this, I listened to Exile on Main Street in the bath and I was like, wow, this is a lot better than the last time that I listened to it, which was when I was a teenager and just and had just listened to Exile in Guyville by Liz Fair. So you just turned 30, Holly, and that's when like stuff like Astral Weeks and all this other shit starts to click, you know? Like... See, that's, see, that's why I was like, I'm going to listen to Astral Weeks. I bet that's the one that's going to like break through this time and was like, nope, I'm still too, I am still too much of a, a little baby to deal with fucking Van Morrison. But yeah, Exile worked a lot more for me this time it still didn't quite click but i was like wow i kind of i kind of appreciate the sound of this album a lot more than the last time i listened incredible level of energy on that record Um, yeah and also you know that i mean talking about i mean some of jagger's one and you know there's a song called torn and frayed which is a song i think mick wrote about keith um and uh it's again a perfect example, I think, of Jagger's lyric writing. You know, there's a verse that just goes, um, Joe's got a cough. Sounds kind of rough. Yeah. And the codeine to fix it. Doctor prescribes, drugstore provides. Who's going to help him to kick it? I, I, I sort of feel like, you know, it was like Jagger foreseeing his future dealing with Keith. And, you know, I mean, they were just beginning to drift apart. At that point, you know, Jagger was marrying Bianca and Keith was, you know, living in the south of France where they were making this record and descending into drug addiction. Um, but, you know, then, you know, but his coat is torn and frayed. It's seen much better days, but as long as the guitar plays, he'll steal your heart away. You know, it, it um, you know, I don't know. There is a, a very, very powerful parts. I mean, he wrote a song about Angela Davis. Um, you know, on that album, Sweet Black Angel. Uh, you know, it's it's powerful stuff. And if you want to go for the earlier ones, like personally, I would recommend Aftermath. Um, I think that's a fantastic one. Yeah, well, you know that that uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, stupid girl and under my thumb might be a little hard to take. You know, <laughs> <laughs> is Queen is Lady Jane on that one too? Lady Jane is on that one. That one's also a little hard to take. <laughs> might be a little bit hard to take too, but yeah, that's one just more cynical, you know. But it, um, you know, wedlock is nigh, my love. Her station's right, my love. Life is secure with Lady Jane. Um, you know, uh, I mean, look, you can listen to my daughter. Strangely, 
I mean, I, I have made a point of not, um, you know, uh, foisting all this stuff on her. I didn't want it to be school, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, she listened to enough of it when I was listening to it, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I took her to see the stones and, you know, she was blown away. Uh, so like she went back and listened to 12, uh, to 12 by five, not 12 by five to out of our heads, you know, which has satisfaction. And, um, the last play with fire on that one, play with fire is on yeah. that one, which is a song she particularly likes. Um, you know, let the good times roll. It, you know, that wouldn't be a bad one actually. Oh, and the first track, it was a Don Covey cover, um, uh, have mercy. You know, I went to see the gypsy to have my fortune read. She said, man, your baby's going to leave you. Her bags are packed up under the bed. Uh, you know, it's like, it's, you know, the stones were trying to make like, like chess records, you know, and they sounded like chess records, you know? Uh, so, you know, if, if you're, uh, you know, that might, that might, you know, that might not be a bad idea. And if you're a CD fan, I know a lot of people don't listen to CDs so much anymore. Like those Abco ones that were re-released, like maybe like 20 years ago or so. Yeah. Now, like they sound, they sound like the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Like, yeah, they're yeah. like those dual layer CDs or something. They re they reissued them the first few. Yeah, yeah they they made a couple of like well, their version of Everybody Needs Somebody to Love um, is different from the one that's on the original vinyl record that I have mm-hmm. uh, and. I don't know if they use them different take or maybe it's the UK version or something. <laughs> so that's the, that, that is yeah. the perfect response. Yeah. Eric or Holly, is there anything else you want to add tonight or any other questions before we let Anthony go off into the, no, I'm just glad. I'm just glad that they have uh, allowed Richard Ashcroft to take his royalties from uh, Bittersweet Symphony back. I'm, I'm, I would like, you know, yeah. finally seen justice <laughs> for Richard. <laughs> yeah, I, I've used the analogy before that it's like a pick a corpse that's like picked over until the point where there's like nothing left, and then they're finally like, back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was really that was really Alan Klein. In yeah, it. I mean he all that early stuff. Is I he like, the dude that broke the Beatles up? That one of them? <laughs> yeah. That's Yoko Ono, David. No, no, that's Alan Klein is like, cause he's the one that John wanted to go with. Right. And the yeah. manager. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Stones had used him. And, um, I wrote liner notes for this Rolling Stones single col- singles collection, which came out, I think in 1988. And I, I got to know Alan a little bit. And, um, I once said, you know, I just said to him, he owns all the stone stuff through brown sugar. And so I just, I said to him, you know, this was in the heyday of like the box set, you know? And, um, I had actually won a Grammy for writing the liner notes to, uh, wow. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the first Grammy. Want- <laughs> I don't know if it's the first Grammy winner we've had on our Chris France? Uh, Chris- behind me somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah. For the liner notes for, um, <laughs> the other oh for crossroads the eric clapton box set um and i just i said to alan uh you know well are the stones ever going to do a box set you know or, and he goes well you know they would they were talking to me about it like they want me to license my stuff to them and i said no like why don't you license your stuff to me 
because you know i mean like look i've got like jumping jack flash i've got satisfaction you know i've got the last time he goes what do they have and he literally just stopped for a minute and goes angie is a good song <laughs> like you know so it was it was tough uh but i think you know alan died and you know i think the stones you know would let them have their you know the royalties on that on the on the um <laughs> the classical re-recording of <laughs> Is it the last time? Is it? Yep. It's <laughs> yeah. the last time. It sounds nothing like the song. It's like when I hear it, I'm like, I'm like, I don't, I don't hear it, and I, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying. <laughs> I read somewhere that I read somewhere that Mick Jagger actually tried to vet Alan Klein. Not Mick Jagger. Sorry. John Lennon tried to vet Alan Klein through Mick Jagger, and Mick Jagger was just like, "Yeah, he's fine," and maybe had known what he was doing by not being honest about like, him. I think he was, you know, Jagger. I mean, Jagger to this day, where's Keith? You know, Keith saw it as business. I mean, look, they lost millions of dollars, although, you know, they, they made, they've made plenty. Uh, but, um, you know, I think Keith saw it as just business. You know, it's just, that's what it was. And, you know, we got smart. And, uh, you know, I think he liked Alan Klein. Alan Klein was, you know, sort of a tough guy, you know. And, like, the same way Lennon liked him. Where's Jagger, you know, Mr. London School of Economics and Mr. I Know the Business and Mr. I'm Up on All This Stuff, I think was kind of embarrassed, you know, that that he got taken, you know. And um, I think would have been reluctant to just say to Lennon, like to admit to Lennon. Like Lennon was one of the few people that Jagger was kind of a little bit awed by. Um, you know, Jagger kind of looked up to Lennon and I think he would have been, um, I, I mean, I, I don't think he would have any particular reason to want to see the Beatles not do well, but I, I do think that ego-wise, it would have been tough for him to say, look, we got fucking shafted. You it's know? up there with, like, the John Fogarty story and, like, Paul McCartney advising Michael Jackson to invest in music royalties and him buying the Beatles back catalog or something like that. Yeah. It's amazing, <laughs> like, that, you know, those guys, you know, like, that late, you know, man, like, but like, you see this whole thing, like the way, like, you know, Ahmed Erdogan, you know, is kind of this sainted figure, you know, like, you know, essentially stole Stax records, you know, like, um, you know, that you, you send your lawyer in there and you don't tell your lawyer, like, you know, look, I don't really want to just, you know, it's just like go in there and get what you can get, you know, and there's no sense of like, well, gee, you know, it would be nice if the guys at Stacks could could keep their label. Yeah. <laughs> but before you sue us for everything that the three of us own, we should let you go because we're, we're reaching, the, reaching the end of this. Um, thank you. Way. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having. I'm just trying to be sensitive of everyone's time, but thank you so much for for coming out and talking to us tonight. And uh, you know, we'd love to see your Grammy sometime. Um, and <laughs> I can show it to you right now. Yeah, as soon as we get off, as soon as we, we click off, let's let's show it to us. I want to see it. But oh, oh, you don't want to as part of. Yeah, let's see it. if you if you have it there. Let's see. It. <laughs> I've seen never seen a Holly, like, I've never light? seen a person I've talked to hold a Grammy before. A little dusty, but. Uh, how, how much does that weigh? It's actually kind of heavy. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that about Oscars before. Here it is. Look Very at that. Nice. 
That should be in the picture, Holly. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Smile with your gram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you <laughs> thank you for listening at all and uh hopefully so much. this was really fun uh yeah you're indulging me no you this thank is great you for, for spending time with us and for eric and holly and me enjoy, enjoy your, your life. life all right